Welcome to the Shadow Warrior Podcast. I'm the host, Rajiv Srinivasan. Episode 103 is titled, No, the Finance Mandarins Don't Always Screw Up. They Only Do It in Petty Ways. The Twitterverse and the media in general have been brutal to the Babus. The bottom line, though, is that despite periodic missteps, India's finance folks and the central bank have done a stellar job. The Twitterverse and the media in general have been brutal on India's Babu Log for several recent missteps. These, many fear, revive the ghosts of the late lamented License Raj. For instance, the imposition of 20% tax collected at source for overseas credit card transactions, the poorly managed withdrawal of 200 rupee notes, or the angel tax on domestic investments in startups, but not on investments from 21 specified countries. But let's be honest and give them credit where it's due. They shepherded India through the pandemic, leaving the economy in pretty decent shape compared to the rest of the world. Even more importantly, the general handling of the economy has gone so well, of course, thanks also to other tailwinds like the infrastructure push and the manufacturing thrust, that there is a genuine feeling among both locals and foreigners that India's time in the sun is finally here. This is no mean achievement, especially given the withering information warfare waged by the deep state. India's GDP grew in FY23-24 at 7.2%, pretty much the highest rate for any large economy, exceeding estimates even by the Reserve Bank of India. An optimistic report from Morgan Stanley titled How India Has Transformed in Less Than a Decade cites several reasons for such optimism. Government reforms, demography, technology, strong economic fundamentals. India is broken. It ain't. And let's not go with services alone, Raghuram Rajan. And then the Babus go and screw up on these relatively minor things, making everyone look bad. Sigh. This is like I've always said, Indians thrive on complexity. We can do the Kumbh Mela in fine style. Kudos to the much maligned Babus, but we can't queue up for an elevator to save our lives or desist from driving like maniacs, honking like mad, and darting all over the place. Too simple, I guess. There are also habitual naysayers, some surely beholden to the Nehruian Stalinist ecosystem, or on the deep state slash Soros payroll, who simply cannot believe that things are finally beginning to look up in and for India. There are those who are perennially on pet hobby horses, one who gets all his wisdom from taxi drivers, another who thinks low-quality service jobs that add no lasting value are manna from heaven. Others are periodically astroturfed, like mushrooms after rains, to mix American and Malayalam metaphors recklessly. What they fail to see, intentionally, is that the glass is half full. Yes, there are major problems, India's education system is going from bad to worse. Corruption is still a menace. The public sector continues to be an albatross around India's neck. The endless election cycle means that it is hard to think long-term, both for babus and for politicians. 
populist giveaways and special interest lobbies bankrupt the exchequer, the judicial system is in bad shape, and so on. On the other hand, there is proof of progress, undeniable proof. Once the dirigist state was partly dismantled under duress by Narasimha Rao, things improved notably as the animal spirits of Indian entrepreneurs and traders apparently had a field day. Under Narendra Modi, India's steady recent growth has been in nice contrast with tepid growth elsewhere. But the more intriguing tale is about poverty reduction on the one hand and of the provision of services on the other. If the UN is to be believed, India has lifted 415 million people from poverty in 15 years. Furthermore, various infrastructure projects providing electricity, drinking water, roads and railways to even remote parts of the hinterland are quite likely increasing the quality of life as well as the per capita income. The other big deals, of course, are demonetization and GST or goods and services tax. Despite massive negative propaganda, I think the impartial observer today would be hard-pressed to see these as net negatives. The giant strides made towards digitization just by themselves would justify the relatively minor inconvenience people went through at the time. UPI has, excuse me, UPI has made inroads into the remotest interior villages. Echo Rap from the SBI says that 60% of transactions by volume and value are now coming from rural and semi-urban areas. The same report says that the value of UPI payments has gone up from rupees 6,947 crore in FY17 to rupees 139 lakh crore in FY23, a huge growth of 2004 times. The use of the smartphone as a point-of-sale system has been a nice adaptation of technology supported by geo and inexpensive data. There is a video clip of P. Chidambaram, the former finance minister of India, mocking digital transactions. In the video, Chidambaram is speaking at an event and he says, quote, how can you expect a poor lady in a village to use digital transactions when there is no electricity and no point of sales devices? Question mark. End quote. Pretty bad look from the supercilious Chidambaram. It is the same attitude displayed by naysayers from Lutians and Khan market. They do not believe the average Indian can or will progress. Only the Maibab Sarkar of the Nehru dynasty can save them, they claim. On the contrary, the Nehruvian penalty has kept 500 million Indians poor, as I wrote on Rediff.com in 2004. The reality is that under the Nehruvian Stalinists, India kept falling behind the rest of the world. After 1991, India is slowly and painfully clawing its way back up the ranks of global wealth. The goods and services tax, despite many flaws, has also been a success in creating a single national marketplace and reducing logistics bottlenecks. Remember those mile-long queues of trucks idling at state boundary checkpoints and surely the enormous amounts changing hands? As India ramps up manufacturing, the improvement in transportation efficiency will pay for itself. None of this happened just like that. It was willed into existence, says the emissary in a positive note. And this is true. Somebody imagined it and somebody else 
Yes, the very same bubbles put things into motion. Compared to all these pluses, surely the mandarins are entitled to screw up a little bit now and then. But the point is the mindset behind the TCS and the poor communication strategy behind the 2000 rupee note withdrawal. At a time when India is attempting to offer the rupee as a global currency and trying to make India a more attractive investment location, the TCS or tax collected at source surely feels like a retrograde step dating back to the days of worrying about foreign exchange reserves and unnecessarily so as India's current kitty is around $572 billion which is close to an all-time high. The signal it sends out is that officious babus will make life difficult for average users in the pursuit of either minor increases in tax collection or an illusory improvement in forex reserves. Far more useful would be a deep analysis of what is causing the trade deficit with China to balloon. It is now bigger than India's entire defense budget. Which sectors or products will have the greatest bang for the buck? For example, pharma APKs and solid production-linked incentives to increase Indian production are the same. The withdrawal of the 2000 rupee notes is probably a good idea because now, by now, the criminal ecosystem has figured out how to counterfeit them efficiently. As in years past, the second best notes are likely being produced in Pakistan and shipped through the Middle East to India. So there's nothing wrong in removing them from circulation. Two caveats though, it would have been a lot better to withdraw them before the BJP's debacle in Karnataka. It's sort of locking the barn door after the horses bolted. As in years past, the vast bulk of corruption money intended for elections is quite likely stored in these larger notes, and removing them from circulation is a good idea. Well, fine, this will have an impact on the 2024 elections, I imagine. The second is a total cock-up in the communication of the withdrawal. The first announcement said the notes could be deposited before a certain date, but that they would continue to be legal tender, which seems counterintuitive. If you deposited more than 20,000 rupees a day, though, the idea seemed to be that you would have to show some ID, PAN or Aadhaar. That would help identify anybody who had been holding large quantities of cash, usually for dubious purposes. But then the second announcement from the State Bank of India said there would be no need for any paperwork. Meanwhile, people are using the 2000 rupee notes to buy luxury items, especially gold. So exactly what is going on? What is the point in this not demonetization? Did the babus get cold feet and do U-turns? The angel tax on startups is itself a dubious idea, especially when India is attempting to increase the viability of its homegrown early stage companies. The regulatory atmosphere and the relative paucity of local venture funding is anyway encouraging startups to register themselves abroad, say in Singapore or Dubai or Silicon Valley. By adding a tax, you're making Indian startups less appealing to investors. Furthermore, by picking and choosing investment from certain countries to be exempt from the tax seems either capricious or overreach slash meddling. It simply isn't true that these Anglo and Nordic countries are all pure as the driven snow, as we have seen on numerous occasions. The bottom line, though, is that despite periodic missteps, India's finance folks and the central bank have done a stellar job and it shows India's banks are currently among the most profitable in the world with no worrying bank failures 
unlike, say, in the US and Europe. Interest rates and inflation are modest, again, unlike the US and EU. So two cheers for the Babus, written June 1, 2023.